The Story of Brutus' Spirit What is the best kind of death? Lepidus asks Caesar on the 14th of March. The unexpected kind, Caesar replies. Brutus reads his own treatise concerning duty by lamplight. He has written at great length about the duty owed by sons to their fathers, by friends to their friends. He screws up the papyrus and throws it onto the fire. Don't go, Calpurnia says suddenly, as Caesar prepares to leave the house. I had a terrible dream last night. I saw your body streaming with blood, and then I saw the roof of our house collapse. Don't go today. Stay here and lock the door. Don't be daft, woman, says Caesar gruffly, and he dismisses his bodyguard and strides out into the street. Do you remember what you said about Pompey once? Cassius asks Brutus. You said it was not possible to live as slaves to a lawless king. I am not sure it's possible to live under any king, says Brutus. Any king becomes the master, and we the slaves. We must live free, or die trying. Or both, says Cassius. I told you to beware the Ides of March, the soothsayer shouts at Caesar as he passes. And here they are, the Ides have come, says Caesar, and here I still am too. They have come, but they have not yet gone, Caesar, replies the soothsayer. Brutus sees Caesar entering the meeting place, sees Trebonius grabbing onto loyal Antony's arm and keeping him outside. Antony, Caesar's friend, his confidant, his loyal lapdog, his slave. Brutus will not be Antony, does not want to be Antony. Did he once want to be Antony? No, never. He follows Cassius inside. Caesar glances up at the statue of Pompey as he comes into the meeting. A series of images flash through his mind. An angry face in the Senate. A grim face on the opposing side of a battlefield. A bloody disembodied head in a box. He carries on walking towards the statue. Tullius Kimber is approaching Caesar, begging for his brother to be allowed back from exile. More men crowd around him, supporting him bustling to take their turn next? The crowd becomes rowdy, more like the mob than a group of stately senators. Tullius pulls Caesar's toga down from the shoulders. Cassius grabs Caesar's face and jerks it toward the statue of Pompey. Caesar has no choice but to stare at the cold marble head as Casca draws a dagger and plunges it into his shoulder. Caesar grabs Casca's wrist where it holds the blade and drags his stylus down Casca's arm, red blood pouring from both. 
But Casca is not alone. From every side, knives appear, and for every three that Caesar dodges, a fourth finds its mark. Caesar is bent over at the foot of Pompey's statue, blood pouring from many wounds and spattered all over the white folds of his toga. Still he stands, almost, hands raised to defend himself, and Brutus steps through the crowd, knife in hand. Something goes out of Caesar then. His shoulders drop, his legs buckle, and he falls to the floor. He is almost done, but not quite yet. And you, child, he says in Greek. They can all finish the proverb, and you, child, will taste this too. Or is it a question? Does it have another meaning for Brutus alone? He will not think it, will not acknowledge it. No matter, no time for that now. The deed has to be done. Is already done. It just needs to be finished. Brutus strikes. Caesar pulls the tattered remnants of his toga over his bloodied head and sinks to the ground. The statue of Pompey looms over him, impassive. The senators melt away as Antony's running footsteps are heard approaching. Brutus looks down at his own bloodied hands. Kill Antony, cries Cassius, and others take up the call. No, cries Brutus. The blood of one Roman on our hands is enough, and Antony may yet join us. And he throws off his bloodied toga and runs to the capital to speak to the people. The people will understand. They will be happy. They will be grateful. They will understand, he tells himself. They will understand. Brutus paced his tent, restless, flipping a coin over and over in his hand. On one side it showed his own head, on the other two daggers flanking a freedman's cap and the inscription, The Ides of March. The top of the cap had been worn away by his anxious thumb. Around him the snoring sounds of the sleeping camp blended into the wind. We are free, he murmured to himself, as he had done every night for more than two years. We are free now. He scrutinised the map by the dying lamplight. It would be a long march from here in Sardis to Philippi, renamed for Alexander the Great's even greater father. There was a plain west of the city which would suit them. He'd heard there were some ancient rock carvings not far away, showing horsemen and weapons. Perhaps he would have time to go and see them. He heard footsteps outside the tent. Wasn't yet time for the watchman to come and update him, Cassius usually slept well no matter what the circumstances, so who was it? There was a rustling sound, the entrance to the tent flapped open almost of its own accord, and in came a huge hulking shadow of a man. It moved to stand silently in front of him, the deep shadows on its angular face looking like great black holes. The nose looked almost like Caesar's, then it turned slightly another way, and it looked almost like his own. The figure struck terror deep inside him, but it stood silently and did nothing. Come on, man, Brutus thought to himself. Why be frightened of something that shows no desire to do you harm? 
Forcing his rational brain to take control of his quivering lips, he asked it, Who are you? And what do you want with me? I am your evil spirit, Brutus, the thing said in a rasping voice. It held up a hand and gestured towards the map. You will see me at Philippi. I will see you, Brutus told it, and the thing turned and moved out of the tent. Brutus called the slaves and the guards and questioned them all, but all of them, quaking, claimed to have seen and heard nothing. The sky was lightning with the first signs of dawn, so Brutus went to Cassius's tent and shook him awake. "'What do you think it was?' he demanded after a brief description. "'I think it was your imagination, Brutus,' said Cassius grumpily, rubbing sleep out of his eyes. "'I am not in the habit of imagining strange men wandering about my tent,' Brutus replied crossly. "'Look,' said Cassius, "'we can only perceive the world through our senses, right?' And our senses are fallible and easily deceived. An impression on the senses is like an impression in wax. The soul is like the wax and it reshapes the impressions as they hit it. The soul is like wax, Brutus said, frowning. Yes, I mean, the soul is like a collection of atoms distributed all around our bodies. And as sights or sounds or other senses hit those atoms, the atoms rearrange themselves. Like dreams, when the imagination produces all sorts of things from vaguely remembered impressions. And when your body is worn out, stressed and overwhelmed, the imagination can run riot. I think it was my evil fate, said Brutus. I think my fortune has always been bad and now it is finally catching up to me. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves, said Cassius. Besides, I do not believe there is any such thing as an evil fate or a divine entity attached to each man's being. Even if such a thing existed, it would not have the appearance or speech of a man. You need to try to get more sleep, my friend. Perhaps you were asleep at last, and it was a dream. I was not asleep, and it was not a dream, said Brutus. Well, see if you can call it back again, said Cassius with a yawn, calling his slave for a cup of Posca. He threw the vinegary mixture down his throat, shivered involuntarily, shook the sleep out of his eyes and called for another. If we can convince the men the gods are on our side, our chances will be much better. Did you listen to anything I said? demanded Brutus in confusion. It was not a friendly spirit, whatever it was. It almost looked like Caesar from some angles. But Cassius was no longer listening, and Brutus gave it up and returned to his tent. Three months later, another night, another tent, in another place. Whether Philippi was as impressive or as interesting as he had hoped, Brutus could hardly say. All his thoughts were consumed with the plain, where Cassius had fought Antony and had died. Sir, look at this! One of his men ducked into the tent, waving a cheap pamphlet at him. Produced by Antony and Octavian, it urged all his soldiers to leave him and to join them the clear victors, the avengers of Julius Caesar. Amintas and his men have already gone over to the avengers, sir, said the man, standing well back from his general as he spoke. Why do we delay? The men are keen to end this, one way or the other. 
And are the men leading this army, or am I? snapped Brutus. He waved the man away. A new coin was in his hand, and he ran it through and through his fingers, rubbing it with his thumb. Not one of his own. This one showed on one side, Antony, and on the other side, the child Octavian, who was now calling himself Caesar. The boy had given himself a tiny scrap of a beard in the Greek style in his portrait, a rather pathetic attempt to make his twenty years seem like more. How was this kid Julius Caesar's heir? Three wives, at least three notable female partners, and no doubt dozens more or less well-known, and somehow Rome's most notorious lover of everything that moved had left only an Egyptian baby and an upstart great-nephew to succeed him. At least three notable female partners, including Brutus's own mother. Who was this precocious teenager, this non-entity, this spawn of Caesar's niece, to take the name Caesar for himself? He knew nothing of Caesar. Or he knew Caesar too intimately by half, according to the rumours. Brutus didn't believe that. Caesar was no Greek to be lured in by a pubescent boy. He rubbed the tiny beard on the boy's golden face again, shakily. Rule by a lawless king is the worst kind of rule, Plato said. Rule by a philosopher king might be the best. He had never really considered the obvious course, that instead of freeing Rome he could have enslaved them all himself, and with a much better claim to do so than this child. And Antony. If he had allowed Cassius to kill Antony in Rome, sixty of them versus one of him, they could have seized power then and there, and he could have taken the name of Caesar, and Rome would be enslaved but happy, and Cassius would be alive. Brutus wished he could share the Stoic's confidence in the idea that a man's fate was fixed and immovable. It was such a wonderful way of avoiding responsibility for anything. It wasn't his fault. He was fated to save Antony's life that day in March, just as he was fated to murder his mother's lover. Caesar probably knew that, and that was why he named this spotty boy barely out of his teens as his heir, with Brutus' own cousin as a second, and Brutus himself cast aside. Cassius had been fated to die here. That's why the gods made it seem to him as though Brutus had lost his own fight, even as Brutus himself was chasing down the cowardly upstart where the weakling was apparently puking his guts out in the marshes. As if in answer to his question, he heard footsteps outside the tent and the rustling of the opening coming apart by itself again. It was back. The phantom, whatever it was, stood looming over him as before. Its face was impassive, shadows even deeper than before, the expression just as grim. It said nothing. My evil fate, murmured Brutus. Have you followed me all my life, spirit? Was I always destined to come to this end? Silence. And then, the fault is not in our stars, but in ourselves, he heard Cassia saying in his head. Suddenly, he saw each decision clearly. He chose to kill Caesar, knowing how much Caesar loved him, knowing, perhaps, what he himself meant to Caesar. He did it to save Rome. Had he failed? Not yet, not while he still breathed. He left Antony alive that day, naive, perhaps, as Cicero had said. Poor Cicero, another death on his conscience. Kill Antony that day in March, and Cicero lives, Cassius lives. 
perhaps the boy King Octavian dies, Brutus lives. But he had done the right thing, the ethical thing. He knew his actions were just. He was a liberator. He was not a murderer. He looked up once more at the phantom, and now that strong nose looked almost like Antony. It seemed to flicker in the lamplight, now becoming Caesar again, now Antony, now himself. The three of them bound up together in blood and ambition and regret. The fault is in myself, said Brutus aloud. But I can find no fault. I regret nothing. I would choose the same again. You can tell that to the sick child who wants to kill me. I care nothing for him. Either Antony or I will come out of this, and if it is him and not me, then so be it. He drew himself to face the phantom head on. Still, it was silent. It will be him or me, Brutus said again. But he knew, and the phantom knew, and probably Antony also knew, which of them would die tomorrow. Brutus squared his shoulders and marched out of his tent. They would fight in the morning. The end. Hello, welcome back to Creepy Classics, the podcast retelling and discussing ancient, medieval and early modern ghost stories. I am Juliet Harrison. And in this episode... We have an ancient story that is probably better known as an early modern one. <laughs> so basically, uh, this story comes from Plutarch, uh, from his lives of Brutus and of Julius Caesar. But it is better known in the version that appears in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. Now, as anybody who knows Shakespeare's play will have noticed, this is not Shakespeare's version. In Shakespeare's version, what Brutus sees is the ghost of Julius Caesar. So maybe when enough time has passed, I'll do it again and do it that way. <laughs> but uh, this is the inverted commas original. Plutarch may have had a source for it. Uh, probably did have a source for it. Um, but this is the Greco-Roman version. <laughs> this is uh, Plutarch's version, in which, uh, as you have heard it is not the ghost of Julius Caesar. Um, now I did imply that it sort of looks a bit like Caesar from some angles as a bit of a nod to what Shakespeare did with it. Um, but in the ancient story it is it is not uh, Caesar's ghost, it is this spirit, this, this bad spirit. So I will talk about that uh, a bit more shortly. Uh, second episode in a row that opens with an assassination. <laughs> I will try and think of something that doesn't involve assassination. Um, but yes, following on from um, Caligula in the previous episode. Technically, Julius Caesar is not an emperor, but it is a political assassination. There are so many details about Julius Caesar and his murder. There are some things that I've referred to briefly here. If you're not familiar with the history or with Shakespeare's play, um, some of it may not make a whole lot of sense. Um, but trying to squeeze the right level of detail about all of this into a short story that's focused on the spirit um, was quite challenging. Um, 
Now, if you're familiar with the story or with the play or both, um, then it will probably make a little bit more sense. Uh, This is the period of Roman history for which we have the most information, I think it's probably safe to say. Um, This period of the fall of the Roman Republic, the civil war between Julius Caesar and Pompey, which I alluded to very briefly. Um, This is how Caesar ends up fighting Pompey and they face each other on a battlefield and then... It's a whole thing. Pompey goes to Egypt, gets his head chopped off. Caesar is presented with the head. Caesar makes a great show of how horrified he is to be presented with the head. It's a whole thing, um, which I just didn't have time to go into and just kind of (laughs) made this vague reference to. And then Caesar's dictatorship, his assassination, the war between uh, his heir, his great nephew Octavian, who's controversially adopted in Caesar's will, and Mark Antony. Uh, There's also Lepidus, who actually featured very briefly in this story at the beginning, uh, who is the third of the triumvirate, Antony Octavian. So much, so much stuff. (laughs) I am sure we will talk about uh, various aspects of this history um, in the course of various other stories. And I don't want to kind of sit here and do a half hour lecture on the fall of the Roman Republic, because that's not really what this podcast is about, as fascinating as it is. So I've tried to just stick to... um, a few particularly relevant details relating to this specific story. There is, of course, lots more information available on the fall of the Roman Republic. Um, I can highly recommend the BBC HBO series Rome, but it does mess with the history quite a bit. And unfortunately, they got cancelled partway through season two and then suddenly had to rush, which means that um, this story gets a tiny bit rushed, although it really affects what happens after the deaths of Brutus and Cassius. Um, the, the history, the next sort of 10 years after the deaths of Brutus and Cassius, 12 years, um, gets rushed through in about two episodes, uh, which is a great shame, but it is still well worth a watch. Um, and it at least helps you get to grips with who everybody is, if nothing else, put a face to a name. What I really want to talk about today is more the philosophical side, the nature of this spirit uh, that Brutus sees, the conversation between Brutus and Cassius, uh, and what that relates to, um, rather than spending ages and ages um, going through all the political details surrounding this period in history. So I'm sort of skimming over just the highlights uh, of these events they are they are so complicated there is so much more and it's it's a completely fascinating period of history um but uh yeah just to kind of cover the absolute highlights there's a civil war between caesar and pompey pompey gets his head chopped off caesar wins caesar becomes dictator father's a son with cleopatra who's the queen of egypt um Brutus Cassius and about 58 other people decide that they don't like um, the fact that Caesar seems to want to be a king. Brutus has this ancestor who's famous for killing kings. I left that out just because the story was too stuffed already. Um, There are also two Brutuses. Again, I left that out of the story um, because trying to highlight the important things for this particular story um i had to cut enormous amounts of detail from what we know of these events um there are two brutuses in the assassination of julius caesar and there are a couple of novels where they follow decimus brutus instead of the famous one who's marcus junius brutus um 
uh, and a couple of um, historical fiction interpretations in Alan Massey's Caesar and I think another one as well. Um, when Caesar says either and you child, which is what's in the ancient sources in Greek or et tu brute in Latin, which is what Shakespeare has him say. Um, in some versions, he says it to Decimus Brutus. I have stuck to the famous one, Marcus Junius Brutus, because I am giving Plutarch's version. So there are lots of different versions of this. There are lots of different uh, descriptions of it in the ancient histories. But the story of the spirit that appears to Brutus, I am taking from Plutarch. So I am going with Plutarch's interpretation of events, which means that Caesar says it to Marcus Junius Brutus, and I have left Decimus Brutus out altogether in the interest of simplicity. So Brutus, Cassius, and a bunch of other people assassinate Caesar. Brutus persuades them not to kill Antony. And then there is a civil war between Brutus and Cassius on the one hand. There's a whole lot of stuff going on with Antony and Octavian, which again, I don't want to spend ages going into, but it it culminates in the two battles of Philippi. There's a first and second battle of Philippi. In the first battle of Philippi, uh, Brutus fights Octavian. Octavian is hiding in the marshes. He is sick. Uh, his doctor has a dream that he should go hide in the marshes. Octavian is a fascinating character who becomes the Emperor Augustus. Um, he likes to get other people to fight his battles for him whenever humanly possible. Uh, so he is, he's called in sick <laughs> to the battle. Uh, Brutus defeats Octavian's forces, but uh, Antony defeats Cassius's forces. There's also this detail um, in Plutarch, uh, which is something that Shakespeare kind of picks up on and it appears in Antony and Cleopatra as well and Shakespeare also uses it in Romeo and Juliet where Cassius thinks Brutus has been defeated and so Cassius commits suicide not realising that actually Brutus has been victorious so why both Plutarch and then Shakespeare who read Plutarch is so into this particular trope um, I'm not sure uh, but yes it appears here um, so Cassius commits suicide after the first battle of Philippi Brutus is then defeated by the combined forces of Antony and Octavian in the Second Battle of Philippi and commits suicide. And it is before the Second Battle of Philippi that he sees this spirit for the second time. So I have also drawn on the ancient rumours that Marcus Junius Brutus was uh, Julius Caesar's illegitimate son. A lot of historians think the timing isn't right for that. Um, Julius Caesar would have been about 15 when Marcus Junius Brutus was born. Now, that's not impossible. It's also not impossible that we don't know the exact birth dates of everybody with 100% certainty. But being 15 and fathering a child is, is not impossible. Um, also, Plutarch says Caesar believed it was true. Now, whether that is actually the case or not, because I am adapting Plutarch's version, I have therefore chosen to go with that. So I've implied throughout the story that there's this possibility that Brutus, Marcus Junius Brutus, is Julius Caesar's illegitimate son. Caesar did have an affair with Brutus's mother, um, probably later after Brutus was born. Um, but he was very fond of both Brutuses. Um, Decimus Brutus had fought with Caesar before betraying him and 
assassinating him. Uh, Marcus Junius Brutus had fought with Pompey but been forgiven. As I say, it's a whole complicated history. Um, but basically, th- this was kind of what guided my decisions here, that I'm adapting specifically the story Plutarch is telling. And Plutarch thinks that, at the very least, Caesar believes that Marcus Junius Brutus is his son. Um and that that therefore has an impact on Caesar's behaviour. And if Caesar believes that, then I'm assuming that Brutus is at least aware of the rumour, is aware of the possibility. So I've made various oblique references to that. Now, obviously, one of the major pieces of evidence is this thing that Caesar supposedly says as he's dying, uh, which is recorded in Suetonius, in his life of Julius Caesar. Suetonius says that as Caesar was dying, he looked at... Brutus, uh, and I think Suetonius implies Marcus Junius Brutus, or as I say, other authors have uh, interpreted as Decimus Brutus. Um, he looks at Brutus. Plutarch says that when he saw Brutus coming, he sort of gave up the fight, although he'd been stabbed quite a few times already by then. He looks at Brutus and he says, in Greek, Suetonius says, kai su technon, which means, and you child. So he doesn't say, et tu Brute in Latin. That is Shakespeare. He says in Greek, kaisu technon. Now the fact he says it in Greek is interesting. Uh, all of these men spoke Greek fluently. Elite ancient Romans were all fluent in Greek as well as Latin. So it's not that they couldn't understand Greek. However, their first language was Latin and Caesar is dying. So you would think his dying words as a Roman to another Roman would be in Latin. The fact that it's Greek suggests maybe it's a quotation. So it could be a quotation from a lost play. That's one possibility. James Russell has suggested it was a curse, um, that there's some evidence from curses of curses that say, and you child will be cursed in some way. Um, There's also a proverb quoted by Suetonius in another of his lives of the Caesars, his life of the short-lived emperor Galba. Short-lived as an emperor, not as a person. Uh, Suetonius has a quote there where um, it's Augustus says to Galba and you child will have a bite of my power so I've gone with the idea that it's a proverb on the basis that there must be a reason he says it in Greek Um, I've adjusted the proverb slightly um, to make the meaning more you know and you will die rather than and you will have a bite of my power which is also a bit cumbersome in English Um, so I've also tried to make it sound a bit better in English but the editions of Suetonius that I looked at do also have it as a question now I am not a manuscript expert in the manuscripts in the Latin and Greek in the the ancient papyrus scrolls that we usually don't have um, we don't have much in the way of punctuation it's mostly just a bunch of capital letters they don't even have gaps between the words And then the medieval manuscripts introduce punctuation, capital letters, things like that. And there are scholars who are experts in the manuscript tradition uh, and in all the various different kind of versions that we have. And I am not one of them. I read ancient texts in printed versions in books. Now, all the versions I looked at had kaisu technon, it's in Greek script, obviously, in the middle of what's otherwise a Latin life from Suetonius. And they all have a question mark on it which sort of implies it's more like Shakespeare's et tu Brute, you know, and you Brutus, and you child, oh, you, my child, are also killing me, etc. But, of course, that could be 
added by a medieval monk for all we know so i've sort of tried to make it a bit of half a question and you child are killing me as well because you might be my son etc etc and also sort of and you are also going to die and i've tried to kind of imply both of those meanings um in this phrase I've also replicated some of the language that Cicero and Brutus and others used to describe living under a monarchy. Now, this may seem a little bit controversial to modern ears. Um, the way we talk about slavery as modern people is a bit different. But the way these ancient men uh, described living under a monarchy was as slavery. Obviously, we look at that as modern people and say, you are not slaves, you are extremely elite, rich men, and you basically run Rome. You are anything but slaves. There are actual slaves in Rome who would not think that you are slaves just because you have a king. Um, but that's how they saw it. That is how um, ancient uh, men who were in favour of the Republic and against the idea of what became an emperor, uh, a king at this point, that's how they described it. They described living under a monarchy rather than a democracy, or Rome was actually more an oligarchy, but living under a monarchy they considered to be a form of slavery. That's how they talked about it. So I've replicated that here, uh, obviously getting into the mindset of these ancient characters rather than talking about it in the way that we would now. So the ghost or spirit itself um, is described in Plutarch's Life of Brutus, sections 36 and 48, and also in his Life of Caesar, uh, at the very end of that in section 69. The same story is told much more briefly in Appian Civil Wars 4.134, and as I mentioned, it becomes Caesar's ghost in Shakespeare's play. In both Plutarch and Appian, this is told as part of a series of omens, so I have left out all the other omens, I've focused on just this specific spirit. Um, but in both Plutarch and Appian, it's a set of omens that show that Brutus and Cassius are doomed, basically. Uh, the gods are on the side of Antony and Octavian, and there's nothing Brutus and Cassius can do. They are doomed to die. So I've sort of implied that a little bit, but I'm also kind of trying to represent three different philosophies <laughs> in this story which is Cassius Brutus and Plutarch uh, the writer that I'm taking it from as I primarily I've drawn on Plutarch uh, particularly on the life of Brutus and I've tried to kind of interpret and represent and retell this in a way that is clearly Plutarch's version of events um, but I did also draw uh, on the others briefly uh, Suetonius description of Caesar's assassination is the one that has that Greek uh, phrase Kai Su Technon and you child in it, so we've got to have that. <laughs> you can't write about Caesar's assassination without that. Um, and I drew on Cassius Dio a tiny, tiny bit. He's the one who describes the pamphlets um, that Antony Octavian supposedly throw into Brutus's camp to try and get all his soldiers to defect at uh, the Second Battle of Philippi. So, what is this spirit thing <laughs> that appears to Brutus? So, uh, in Greek, so Plutarch writes in Greek, Appian also writes in Greek. And the thing that they describe in Greek is called a daimon kakos. And this is really untranslatable. Uh, kakos means bad, uh, often translated as evil. It doesn't really have the kind of 
Christian connotations that the word evil does in English, but um, evil is kind of close enough. Otherwise, it's just like, I'm your bad spirit. And in English, that doesn't quite get the right sense across either. So Kekos is bad or evil. A daimon is really kind of untranslatable. It is a spirit or divine being somewhere between gods and mortals. It obviously eventually gives us the word demon, but again, it is not a Christian demon. Uh, the word demon develops from this word, um, but a daimon is not, you know, an evil minion of Satan. There is no Satan in Greco-Roman thought or early Christian thought. That's more of a medieval thing. Um so it's not a demon. The, the word demon would not be appropriate. Um, it's also referred to as a phasma, a phantom in Plutarch's Caesar. Um, but primarily it's a daimon kakos. Latin translations often render it as genius. That's spelled the same as genius. They're not quite the same thing, but they were sometimes used in the same ways um, by ancient scholars. And then in Thomas North's English translation, which is probably what Shakespeare read, um, he calls it in the life of Brutus, his translation of Plutarch's life of Brutus, thy evil spirit. And in his translation of Plutarch's life of Caesar, he calls it thy ill angel. And Shakespeare probably read Plutarch's lives in Thomas North's English translation. He may also have read them in Latin. So if we look at what the various meanings these words have, uh, the big lexicon of ancient Greek, little Scott Jones, uh, says a daimon, a god or goddess, a deity, the power controlling the destiny of individuals, one's lot or fortune. So I've drawn on that when I've talked a bit about fate. Um, and they actually, they actually then say the good or evil genius, genius of a family or person, and then they quote this life of Caesar from Plutarch. The souls of men of the golden age, later of departed souls or ghost, and then generally spiritual or semi-divine being. They also mentioned the good genius or genius to whom a toast was drunk after dinner. And then if we look at the Latin dictionary from Lewis and Short, genius, the superior or divine nature which is innate in everything, the spiritual part, spirit, the deity or genius of a person or place. So the two words don't mean quite the same thing, although they are used by the ancients as translations of each other sometimes. So in Roman religion, the genius uh, of the father of the household could be worshipped as part of household religion. It's the divine aspect of a person. A daimon is more frequently a being that exists between gods and mortals, which is how we eventually end up with angels and demons. The Greek angelos means messenger. Um, so they don't have quite this. Neither of them are really translatable. They don't have quite the same meaning, but they can both mean this idea of um, in the case of a good daimon or genius of a person, it would be almost like a guardian angel. In this case, it's a bad spirit. So it's almost like the opposite of a guardian angel, which is why Thomas North has translated it as thy ill angel in his life of Caesar. 
Um, so it's a very sort of woolly concept. It's something that means different things in different contexts. And it also relates to various schools of philosophy. So Plutarch, who is largely a Platonist, following the philosophy of Plato and Socrates, he talks about there being a daimon assigned to each of us. Um, and translations of his on the daimon of Socrates are translated into Latin usually as on the genius of Socrates. Um, and Socrates talked about the daimon quite a lot. Um, so it has that sense of being the kind of spiritual aspect of a person or a spiritual guardian the daimon is more of a kind of a a separate being assigned to a person whereas the genius can be a part of a person themselves more or less um but they, as you can see there's a lot of different meanings to these words they're very complicated and really untranslatable i went with spirit as just kind of the best option to try and get across what was going on I've kind of implied that it's a bit of a combination of this kind of inverse guardian angel, <laughs> this kind of bad spirit, and also a bit of the sense of a diamond as fate or fortune, which is also um, a sort of a possibility in Greek. Um, and I moved the famous Shakespeare quotation about uh, the fault is not in our stars but in ourselves which appears much earlier in Shakespeare's play before the assassination I moved that um, to Brutus and Cassius's conversation about this um, to get across that possibility you know, is it fate and part of the point of the story is that Brutus doesn't really know what it is um, it's mysterious that is part of what the story is about but it's this mysterious omen that appears to him so I've left it fairly woolly exactly what this thing is um, to sort of hint it's a bit of a daimon and a bit of a genius and a bit of a spirit and a bit of a indication of fate maybe and fate is also something I've had Brutus kind of think about towards the the end of the story because there's also quite a lot of kind of competing philosophies. So Brutus seems to have been more or less a Platonist like Plutarch. Quite a few Romans of Plutarch's period leaned towards Stoicism. Stoicism was much more into the idea of fate, that um, there's nothing we can do about it. This appeals when you have an emperor telling you what to do. <laughs> oh, well, it's just fate. What can you do? Um, so I've represented Stoicism toward the end when Brutus is thinking about it, but Brutus himself, as well as, say, Plutarch, who wrote the source, um, is more of a Platonist. And then Cassius was an Epicurean. So the Epicureans were sometimes called atheists by other ancient people along with Christians. Atheist obviously means without God, but in the ancient world, it doesn't necessarily mean um, somebody who doesn't believe God or any gods exist at all, but it means somebody who denies um, the traditional Greco-Roman gods. 
so Christians were considered to be atheists um, because worshipping a Jewish carpenter does not count <laughs> as a god. Um, Epicureans were closer to what we would think of as atheism. Uh, they weren't really into gods. They were really into the idea of atoms. The main source for Epicureanism is Diogenes Laertius' 3rd century CE Lives of Eminent Philosophers and also a 1st century BCE epic poem by Lucretius called uh, On the Nature of Things. So they thought of the soul as a physical part of the body and it was kind of atoms that were spread out throughout the body and that it would die with the body. The goal of Epicureans is to live a pleasurable life that they consider to be the main thing you, you, you want to aim for. Um, and generally they stayed out of politics, but obviously that's not the case with Cassius. Uh, this may have been based on the idea that life for everyone, including the people around him as well as himself, would be more pleasurable without Caesar. It may have been the idea that moral satisfaction brings pleasure. Um, Cassius apparently wrote to Cicero before the conspiracy and said, pleasure and freedom from worry are won by virtue, justice and propriety. So uh, Epicureanism isn't necessarily entirely kind of hedonistic and, oh, let's just have fun. Um there is an idea that pleasure can be gained through moral satisfaction and doing the right thing. Um, so I've sort of combined um, Plutarch's summary of Cassius Epicurean beliefs, which is hostile because Plutarch's not an Epicurean, uh, with some other details about Epicureanism, atoms and souls. Plutarch himself was um, not keen on Epicureanism at all. He was initi initiated into a mystery cult which reassured its members of life after death. So very much the opposite of, of an Epicurean belief where Epicureans believe that yeah, the soul, the body, they all just die. Um, in my book, Imagining the Afterlife, in my own article, in my own book, um, I have declared that it was the cult of Dionysus that Plutarch was initiated into and I have not put a reference on that piece of information. <laughs> and I'm now reading back on this book I wrote a few years ago and going, why did I think it was Dionysus and not Eleusis, which is the mystery cult of Demeter and Persephone? Um, Persephone being the, the girl who's taken down to the underworld by Hades and spends six months on the upper world and six months in the underworld, etc., etc. Um... I have no idea why I was so confident a few years ago when I wrote that book that it was Dionysus. Um, answers on a postcard. <laughs> Probably one of those two anyway, either way. So Plutarch um, very much believes in, in life after death himself. Um, so his summary of Cassius's Epicureanism is, is fairly hostile. Um, so I've tried to kind of present Cassius's beliefs in a less sort of hostile way but obviously the the point of the story is this sort of spirit um but the spirit doesn't have to be a ghost so it is not julius caesar's ghost as it is in shakespeare i have invented um the kind of implication that it looks a bit like caesar and a bit like brutus and a bit like antony that was just me um plutarch just describes it as huge and monstrous um and looks like a man and that's pretty much it um, so whether it's a kind of stoic omen of fate or a platonic Socratic divine being assigned to Brutus or a more Roman divine aspect of Brutus or just a random omen, <laughs> um, 
hopefully it is deliberately ambiguous because any of those would be a, an entirely sensible reading um, of Plutarch's story. So that was a bit of a rambling summary of some really complex um, stuff. There's just so much to talk about um, with just the political history um, of Brutus and, and Cassius and Caesar. You've got the the philosophical history, the different philosophies, the relationship between the philosophical approaches and what's going on politically. You know, why do they decide to assassinate Caesar? How do they square that with their own philosophy? Why does Brutus spare Antony? Um, Cicero told him that was a stupid thing to, to have done. <laughs> um, there's... What exactly is a daimon anyway? Is a daimon the same as a genius? How are we going to translate that into English? You've got the fact that people will know this story from Shakespeare and Shakespeare has deliberately changed things. And yeah, it's incredibly complicated. There's so much that we could talk about. So um, there are plenty of places to read more about various things that I've sort of touched on briefly in this podcast. So the primary sources are all available on the website Lacus Curtius, um, which is the collection of um, translations of Roman sources that I use a lot. It's got Plutarch, Suetonius and Appian. Also, uh, perseus.tufts.edu has the same um, English translations. Perseus also has the Thomas North translation of both lives, Plutarch's lives of Caesar and of Brutus, into English, um, which is Shakespeare's source. There is a detailed timeline of events in this civil war in Catherine Tempest's book, Brutus the Noble Conspirator, which is a biography of Brutus that I would thoroughly recommend. And the timeline is absolutely brilliant because this, like we, we know so much more about this period of history than most of ancient history. Um, and it's so complicated. <laughs> There's so much going on, people changing sides all over the place and changing allegiances. Um, so I definitely recommend Catherine Tempest's book and that timeline at the back, which is brilliant. Um, the various philosophies are all kind of set out on the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy Online. They have sections on uh, Epicurus and Epicureanism, on Stoicism, on Platonism. Uh, you can read more about Brutus's coins um, at www.humanities.mq.edu.au slash a-C-A-N-S slash Caesar slash Civil Wars uh, underscore Libertas dot H-T-M or you can Google Brutus coin. Um, but that one um, is uh, a very helpful introduction to Brutus's um, coins. The other coin, the Antony and Octavian coin that I described um, is from the British Museum website. I did cheat. It was actually made in 39 BCE, a few years after Brutus and Cassius died, but I'm assuming that they might have made a similar coin earlier as well. I briefly mentioned Posca, which is this vinegary stuff um, that uh, soldiers in the legions drank. Um, the YouTube channel Tasting History with Max Miller has a fantastic episode on uh, Posca and on what Roman legions ate. And I'd also just thoroughly recommend that YouTube channel in general. It's very, very good. Um, fascinating stuff on ancient, uh, sorry, not ancient, on historical food and drink uh, with plenty of uh, primary sources and discussion of the historical context. If you have access to academic articles on JSTOR, I also used uh, David Sedley's article, The Ethics of Brutus and Cassius, the Journal of Roman Studies, volume 87. And I used 
Hanu Putiainen, I apologize if I've pronounced that wrong, um, Auto Apotropix, Daimon and Suke between Plutarch and Shakespeare in the Oxford Literary Review, volume 34. So thank you so much for listening. I will be back uh, toward the end of June with another episode. Um, I haven't decided what uh, I'm going to cover uh, yet, but I will try and think of something that isn't a political assassination. Creepy Classics was written and performed by Juliet Harrison. Music composed and performed by Ed Harrison. It was produced by Juliet Harrison with assistance from Newman University. <laughs>